Good morning, brothers and sisters, and I wish you Merry Christmas this morning. I wish you truly have a Merry Christmas this season. I wish you and pray that you just fall in deeper love with our Lord Jesus Christ as you ponder on his life and his incarnation and as you understand deeper and deeper the implications of him becoming man, I just pray that you would be getting closer and closer to him. I invite you to pray with me before we begin and we will look at scripture together. Our Father, we praise you this morning for your son Jesus Christ. He's an amazing savior. Amazing Lord to us. He is the Son of God who was with you from eternity and has come in order to accomplish the greatest task of salvation that you have planned from eternity to save us humans deprived and bring us into glory and bring us into fellowship with you forever. We praise you, Lord. I pray as we look into your word, that is just so deep and profound. I pray for us to have a little better glimpse of your son, Jesus. I pray that we would just be in awe of him, not only as the son of God, but also the perfect human that ever lived and continues to live, having the body just like we all do. I pray that every one of us here that you would, with your spirit, make your word clear and bring us closer to your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, I invite you to make your way over to Hebrews chapter 2. As you make your way there, I'd like to share a story with you. There's a story about a man named Desmond Doss. He was an American soldier who refused to use a weapon due to his convictions. This man was a seven-day Adventist, but he was accepted to go to war as a combat medic. Without ever carrying a weapon, he managed to save many lives during one of the bloodiest battles in World War II in the Pacific. In Okinawa, Japan, the Army's forces needed to climb a steep cliff called Hacksaw Ridge. Some of you have seen the movie. And they were climbing to a plateau where thousands of heavily armed Japanese soldiers were waiting for them. And under a barrage of gunfire and explosions, Das crawled on the ground from wounded soldier to wounded soldier. He dragged severely injured men to the edge of the ridge, tied a rope around their bodies, and lowered them down to other medics below. In this way, Das saved 75 men, including his own captain, over a 12-hour period. Before he was seen as a weak man, and after the event, he came to be known as one of the bravest persons alive. Let me share with you another story just a little further, a few decades later. Just recently, in 2013, when a clothing factory collapsed in Bangladesh, a worker in a clothing factory across the street rushed to help. Over two days, while others were afraid to enter this partially collapsed building, this man pulled more than 30 people from the rubble. 
three of the people he rescued had their body parts pinned by the debris, and he performed amputations so that he could pull them to safety. It happened to be that he rushed to a surgeon, and he says, you need to do this, and he says, I'm afraid. Here's the local anesthetic and a knife, and you do it. And he did it, and he saved three people just like that. And my point is that we love to hear these stories, don't we? We are amazed to hear about people who were truly heroes. These people, they are sacrificial people. They sacrificed their own lives in order to save someone else, putting their own lives in danger. But not only that, we just love observing people who are unique in their skills, in their actions, things that they do. We, we have people that we just love to observe, special artists or unique uh, athletes or some political figure, figures like world leaders, right? We enjoy to observe someone who is very extraordinary. That's why we have yearly Nobel Peace Prize winners. That's why every year there is Time Magazine comes up with the person of the year. Sometimes we agree with them, with their assessment. A lot of times we don't. There are goats. Have you heard of goats? Uh, goats, greatest of all time. Athletes, like uh, a goat in basketball, goat in golf. Those of you who keep up, they probably can name you a few. We just have this natural inclination and desire to elevate people and just desire for humans to succeed, to do well, to because we, in some way, we can relate to them. Well, look at this. This is a human being just like me, but he has extraordinary skill. I know even Bible mentions and honors people and emphasizes someone like Solomon, who was the richest man on earth, someone as generous as the widow who gave up the last two pennies, someone as brave as Esther who risked her life for the sake of her nation. But yet the Bible doesn't shine, does not shy away by pointing out that every single man and woman, as good as they are, as talented and extraordinary they are in their abilities, they all tend to fail. They all sin, they all end up committing some despicable sin, grievous acts. They oftentimes end up being obsessed with themselves, full of pride. And that's how we are. We humans continued on from the time of the fall, from Adam, starting from Adam and ending with you and me today. We continue to fail and we cannot be that perfect man. Now, within the letter to Hebrews, the writer to Hebrews, he mentions the intended purpose of a man. He quotes Psalm 8, which we will go to later, and he points out the intention of God. God made man to be perfect and to carry perfectly and represent him in a perfect way, to be that representation of God as he rules and he conducts things upon the earth as he manages things to the creation. He was that chief crea creation to manage the rest of the creation. And then we see very shortly in chapter three of Genesis, horrendous failure of man, which we reap until today. 
But we see that God has not left us helpless as humanity. He provided to us his own son, Jesus Christ, who was present with him from eternity, whom he sent upon this earth, who took on flesh. He became like us that we can totally relate to. He was like us, a human person, a human being who has fulfilled the intention and plan of God perfectly. Being perfect human, he led us to salvation and will lead us to glory forever. And he does that in a very amazing way. Please read with me as we go into Hebrews chapter 2. Our passage is a lengthy one. We will not be able to cover the whole thing, but we will read from verse 5 all the way down to the end of the chapter. Please read with me. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone." For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in blood, in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. And through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is also able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This is a very glorious text, a very packed text. And we will go through portions of that specifically. Allow me to shine a light and just remember, remind you of what the book of Hebrews is all about. You remember that we do not know the author of the Hebrews. We do not know even exactly to whom the author was writing to. 
One thing we do know is that he was writing to some people who knew the scriptures, the Old Testaments, very well because he quotes the Old Testaments like every five, three verses, right? Probably the most among the authors of the New Testament. That's why we believe that these were Christians who were Jews before and were converted and now they are Christians who are living in a very specific time of being persecuted and ridiculed, and they are suffering. And many of them are now wondering whether they should continue on with faith, of Christian faith, or go back to the Judaism. Whether they should deny the Christianity and they would forfeit the faith of Christ and following of Christ and go back to the law and go back to Judaism. And that is why the author of this book writes them a letter saying, what? He's saying, you guys, Jesus, Jesus is superior than any of the things that you have read in the Old Testament. In fact, all of the things that in the New Testament, they point to him, and therefore he is worthy. He is superior than anyone or anything else, and he's worthy of your honor. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your faithful walk and obedience. Therefore, he calls them to be faithful in their faith. And now, this is as the overview of the book. Now, we go into our first argument. And within the first two chapters, he makes special argument about Christ's superiority over angels. You've seen it. It mentioned, I believe, angels somewhere between six or nine times. Because the writer constantly compares them to Jesus Christ to angels. And he says that Jesus Christ is way more superior than angels. And you may wonder, why is he doing that? And the reason is because it is written in scripture and it it was very highly, angels were very highly regarded by Jews because they were the mediators back on Mount Sinai when God has given the word of God to the nation of Israel The Jews, I mean the angels, they were the mediators. They were the ones who were involved in passing the word to the people. And they were believed to be those who were actively involved in the administration of the world. And therefore for the Jew to say, the Jew was wondering, well, is he really higher than the angels, this Jesus Christ? And the author of Hebrews, he says, absolutely. He's infinitely greater than any of the angels. If you even just follow within the first chapter, as the author specifically emphasizes the deity of Jesus Christ, you can see things like this, that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. He's the creator of all things. He is powerful and upholds all things. This is just in verse in chapter one. Having made purifications of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is one with a great name, the Son. He's the Son who received authority above all the enemies of God. He has a perfect character. He's the one who loves righteousness just like God. He's the one who hates lawlessness just like the Father. He has authority and dominion that has no end. This is our Jesus. He's the everlasting King. And then, The angels, on the other hand, they're just called to worship the Son. 
And angels are those who serve the Son and the Father. This is all from chapter 1 that we get. And look at verse 14 with me where he says that the angels, in part of their job is to administer and help and serve for the sake of salvation of human beings. And this is where the author shifts a little bit focus onto the people, onto the humans, and saying the angels are not superior to Christ. The angels have responsibility to serve and help in order to bring people to salvation. This is their task. And this is where our passage begins in verse 5, because this is where the author continues this thought, and he says, for he did not, he, the Father, did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. And our passage from verse chapter 2, verse 5 through 15, can be broken down, and I would like to emphasize three characteristics that the author is emphasizing here. First is that Jesus is the expected son of man. He is that expected perfect human. The second aspect is that Jesus is the qualified pioneer. In your text, you will see the author. I chose pioneer. We'll explain why. And number three is that Jesus is the sanctifying brother. He relates to us in a very unique, familial way. So those are the three aspects that we will look at today as we will go through our passage. Let's go to the first one. Jesus is the expected son of man. Look at verse 5. Again, he says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're speaking. Immediately, you probably have a thought, which world to come? What is he talking about? Well, as we have heard from last time, as Pastor Tim was teaching, mentioning in verse 2 of chapter 1, referring to the last days when Jesus, when God spoke to us through the Son, I believe it's the same period of time that the author is referring to, the period between the first coming of Jesus Christ and his second coming. This is the world to come that the author is referring to. And he says, this period of time, this world, this inhabited world has not been subjected to angels, but it was subjected to someone else. And the author says, allow me to take you to a place in the Old Testament and remind you of something. And therefore, I invite you to go to Psalm 8. And I want to, for you to look at it, at the argument that the author is making. You know, when we read the New Testament, especially the book of Hebrews, and when the author just mentions sometimes just a little phrase, and we think, well, did he just pull it out of context? The answer is no. The author has the entire context within which that phrase or that word or that verse was written in, and he wants us to understand that. Why was it written and why is he quoting that? So if you look at Psalm 8, Psalm 8 was written specifically by David. And if you look at it, he immediately, beginning with verse 1 and ending with the same way, he says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens? From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful seize. 
When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David exclaims this praise to Yahweh. And what has caused him to do that? He just came out outside probably, looked at the sky, full of celestial bodies, full of stars. There's the moon. Understanding that the stars being these dots that I'm seeing, they're so much greater and so much more glorious. How is the majesty glorious? God's majesty is glorious that's revealed to us through this creation. This is This is what David is doing. He's just watches the creation of God and that leads him to this exclamation of praise. And then this thought hits his mind and says, well, if this is what God is and how God created all these magnificent things, then who am I? Who, Who is the person? Who is the human being that you actually think of him, that you remember him? that you care for him, who is he then? And yet, you crown him, you have made him a little lower than God, can also be translated lower than angels. In fact, this is how it was translated into Greek in the Septuagint, the, new, the, the translation into Greek of the Old Testament, and this is the text that was quoted by Hebrews. That's why you see the difference, maybe in your NASB versus the Hebrew quotation could mean also lower than angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. And then you put him over all things, over all the creation, and everything else is submitting to him. What is David referring to? I want you to flip your pages to the back, to chapter one of Genesis. He refers to the initial intention Initial plan for the creation that God has had when he created the world. Chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 26, where God says this, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and ever over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping things that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. David referring back to initial creation and the God's intention of making human being and ruling upon this earth and making and creating and building, this is what his intention was and to do it perfectly to do it well, to represent his image well as God. This is what his intent was. And this is what David referring to. And this is now what the author of Hebrews referring to when he quotes the psalm. But look at verse 8. 
the second half of it, where the author says, specifically emphasizing this subjecting. He says, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And I think if you're naturally and honestly read Psalm 8, you will recognize that, yes, the human has been placed as the superior being upon the earth. And even now, in our fallen state, we have some superiority over the nature, over animals, right? We still carry that image of God in us. But if you want to honestly answer the question, well, are all things subjected to the man right now? The answer is no. The answer is no, right? Look, we do rule. We don't go to the forest, have a meeting with animals and say, you know, we plan to make a community here. Can we clear out the forest, build houses, right? No, we just, as a human being, we have the power and we have, we rule this earth. We come in and we take out the forest, we build, we create, right? We rule. We don't ask no animals or any other creatures. But, and we, we can control things. We can control the land. We can control food supply. We can control even our health. All of these things in the way that God has allowed us and allows us. But yet we see that we are so far from subjecting all things to ourselves, right? We are not, we don't, cannot control things. I mean, over this past week, a twister went across five states, destroying 200 miles length of buildings. We have zero control over that. There are hurricanes, there are natural disasters, there are wars, there are political unrest, there, because of that, there's hunger in the world. There are wars. There's sin. There are, you just turn on the news and you're like, I can't believe this. This is what humanity came down to. And it's, it's almost like it's getting worse and worse. And you're thinking, Lord, who has control over this? I definitely don't. I don't even have control over my own sins and the sins of people within my house, right? We have no control. We don't have things subjected to us. But there is someone who has. There's someone who has. And this is where the author takes us to verse 9. This is very key. Where he says, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. There is one who has. This Jesus Christ, who has taken the body, like yours and mine. It's pretty crazy, huh? He had the body like our body. <laughs> and he came upon this earth the son of God who was exalted as, as even from the chapter one, he came and he humbled himself. Be having become like a servant to the humanity and says, I will fulfill 
the in initial intention of God as being that perfect human. I will be that hero. I will be that extraordinary person who does extraordinary things, and I will do it perfectly. And this is what Jesus has done. And the author points out to his lowly state, because look at what he says. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He laid aside the glory that he has had with his father in the presence of his father, and he was praised by angels day in and day out from eternity. And he comes and he accepts this body that is ill and sick and gets wounded and, and gets hurt. And he's experiencing all the sufferings of life that you and I are experiencing today. He has experienced it all. And the suffering culminated to severe beatings, spitting, mocking, torture, even to the point of death, where at one point, no doubt, he was lowered to a level that is lower than angels. Notice this. If this kind of catches your attention, who was made for a little while lower, it wasn't that he was created. That's not what it means. That he, made, he was made lower. One, he was lowered. That's what it literally means. He was lowered to a level for a little while lower than angels. And because of the sufferings of death, he was crowned with glory and honor. You see, Jesus Christ was honored with glory and honor because he suffered. He was that perfect human being. Not only he fulfilled the initial intention that we were supposed to in fulfill of a human being, he also even fulfilled what was spoken of in Psalm 8. Because in Psalm 8, he was supposed to be lowered first. So therefore, Psalm 8 is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, any reader, any Jew reading this would ask a question, why in the world? If this is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the highest of all, superior than anyone else, why in the world would he need to be lowered in order to be exalted again above all else? Why? And this leads us to the second, second characteristic of Jesus, who is the qualified pioneer. Now, the word pioneer, you do not see in your verse. You do see the word called author. And author, it has this meaning of establisher, initiator, right? But the word here, that the original word in Greek, it has a little bit higher and more expanded meaning that not only he's the establisher, not only he's the initiator, but he's also one who there's a time aspect of it, that he's the one who leads and paves the way for someone else as the leader, as the pioneer. So he is this qualified pioneer. And in fact, in order for him to be qualified, and we will talk about what that means, in order for him to be qualified as this pioneer, he had to suffer by rules of God, whoever, however he came up, he had to suffer and he had to die 
in order to fulfill, in order to be qualified as such. Now Jesus, as we look, he was brought to the exalted state. And we know that our Lord Jesus Christ, after being resurrected, he truly was exalted, right? The Father exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above all every name, Philippians 2.9. And we also understand that he will be exalted even to a higher degree. Everything has been subjected to him. He was given all authority. He says, all authority has been given to me in Matthew chapter 28. But a time will come, and we know that, and we live by faith, and even though we do not see that, that all things have been subjected to him, we know that the time will come where every knee will bow. All of the sin, all of the evil that we see in the world, it will be fixed by him. Everyone will submit to him. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord. Paul speaks about this. Peter speaks about this when they say, he is the judge of the living and the dead, right? He will come upon this earth riding on a horse clothed with a robe dipped in blood. He will come and he will fix this thing like no one else. He will have complete control over the situation and the news and and the, the events that are taking place. And we're just amazed at the evil that's been going on. He will take control. He will be exalted. He's exalted now, but he will accomplish this fully when he returns. But for him to do that, for him to be this pioneer for us, he had to die. Look at this. It says in chapter, in verse 9, the very last line, two lines, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, God, it was fitting for God for whom are all things and through whom are all things for the Father in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. We spoke about the author already. He's someone who not only establishes and initiates our salvation, he is this pioneer who carries her through all the way to the point of glory. Now look at this. If you caught this very carefully, it was intended for the Father to bring all of us to glory. All the sons to glory. Look at this. The glory that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, it just doesn't just stay with Jesus Christ. We as human beings, we will be sharing the glory of Christ. Not as sons of God, but as humans. In our human bodies, as those who are redeemed through Jesus Christ. So if you think about it, you will recognize that Jesus did not just accomplish by suffering and dying for us, just to bring us out of the misery of hell and saving us and saying, you know what, Mike, I've saved you. You're going to be this on remote planet, saved from the eternal fire and eternal condemnation. You will be saved. But no, he takes us further. And Jesus Christ, he took us, because of his action, he takes us to glory. We will be able to be with him in glory. 
Let's take a look at specifically at this perfecting of the author. You may wonder, well, what does that mean? God the Father wanted Jesus to suffer in order to perfect the author, in order to perfect the pioneer. What does that mean? The word to perfect has several meanings, and one of them can mean to morally perfect, to someone make someone morally perfect or mature. But we understand that this is not what the author means here. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, speaking of Christ, one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Jesus had no sin. He was morally perfect. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we read, and he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So Jesus did not need moral imperfection. But yet there is another meaning which sounds like this. It is to make someone fitting for a specific purpose. It is some, to make someone qualified to, for the appropriate task. And I believe this is exactly what the author is talking about here. Whenever Jesus Christ's perfection spoken of in the book of Hebrews, it means it speaks about terms of qualification of him for the task of our salvation. So in order for him to be qualified, for us to be brought to salvation and to glory, Jesus Christ had to suffer. He had to go low before he's exalted and before he's able to bring us along with him as this trailblazer that you can call it, pioneer, as this leader of faith, leader of salvation. He's the one who has accomplished that. He was fit. Now, the God's plan was always to bring his sons to glory. From the very beginning, in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, we read that God foreknew his children, he predestined them, he called them, he justified them, and he what? He glorified them in Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, we read that when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. This is God's intention. And even when Paul speaks about our current state as we're being afflicted, as we are going through pain, speaking to the Corinthians, he said, even in the midst of affliction, we think of the eternal weight of glory that awaits us, far beyond all comparison. This is God's intent. In order to bring us to glory as sons, He had his son, his own son, the only begotten son, to suffer and die on our behalf. In fact, we are already seated with Christ, right? Positionally, we're already there. We just need to wait to live out this life, to get rid of this body, to get our new bodies later on and be there in glory forever. So to summarize where we've gotten so far is that Jesus came to earth and fulfilled the role of a perfect human being. And he also suffered, and he died in order to be qualified to be the perfect author or pioneer in our salvation, and he would be able to lead us all the way to glory. But not only that, we do not stop here, and the author doesn't stop here. 
He did that in an amazing way and continues to do that in an amazing way by relating to us in the close, familial, intimate way. He calls us his brothers. Look with me in verse 11. It says this. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Looking at this first line, it says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. You can see that the sanctifier is Jesus Christ. And those who are sanctified, it is us. Jesus Christ is the one who sanctifies us. But then the sentence kind of ends, are all from one. And the original Greek, this is exactly where it ends. In NASB, you see it as father. That is the explanation that translators of the NASB Bible that came down to. If you have ESV Bible, you see it as one source. They're all from one source. I'm more leaning towards the ESV Bible a little bit, and I'll explain why. But what author is saying is this. Because Jesus Christ has taken on the flesh, he has taken the human nature, he was just like us, having flesh and blood. Look at verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Because Jesus and us, because he came down to the servant level, taking on the human body, and because we now share the same body type, and the human nature that we have, Jesus Christ has also. By the way, till this day, Jesus Christ has the human nature now. Because of that, he's able to relate to us in a totally different way. He calls us brothers, brethren, right? Brothers and sisters, you can also say. And because of that, he's not ashamed to call us as such. Now, the humanity of Jesus Christ is a very big and important doctrine. And a lot of times we don't speak about it as a, probably as a response to all kinds of cults and heresies that deny the deity. And we, to, we tend to emphasize the deity, rightfully so, emphasize the deity of Jesus Christ. But humanity for us, it is extremely important. And this is not our own invention. This is how God intended it to be. Understanding that Jesus Christ was human as we are is extremely important and specifically for our understanding our relationship with him. When he said that he's not ashamed, it is like a figure of speech. When Paul was saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he didn't mean that, well, I'm not ashamed. I can stand. No, no, no. What he was saying is, I love the gospel. I stand behind the gospel. I'm proud of the gospel. I'm willing to share it with anyone the gospel, because how important it is to me. In the same way, Jesus Christ, he says, I am not ashamed to call these people brothers. When he presents you before the Father and before the angels, he says, this is my brother. This is my sister. Think about that. Many of you probably have brothers. 
older brothers, younger brothers. I, I have both. I'm the middle child. I have an older brother who's four years older. I have a younger brother who's five years younger. And I love my brothers. We have a great relationship. By grace of God, we're united as by blood and we're united in Christ. We know the Lord. But we did not always have that relationship. You know, probably kids, you can relate, teenagers. You are proud of your younger sibling probably when he's just a baby. You're ready to show off the baby and say, oh, this is my baby brother, my baby sister, right? And as soon as that child becomes four years old and five and six, what happens? You're probably embarrassed. Your friends come over. You're like, go play. Don't mess with us, right? You're a little bit ashamed of your brother. You, you don't want to have anything to he because he's he embarrassing. He's embarrassing. He embarrasses you, right? Sometimes they copy you, another aspect that we can talk about. But Jesus is not like that. He being infinitely superior than us. In our nature, we're just, we're nothing compared to him. And Jesus Christ, as our bigger brother, he comes along and he introduces, he's my brother. And he's proud of that. He says, this is my sister. I'm proud to call her my sister. We're made of one stock. We're made of one stuff, the same stuff. And he has this amazing relationship with us. And sometimes it's almost like, well, are we belittling him like that? Are we, we were just singing praise to the sun. We were worshiping him, right? And now we're calling him our brother. Well, brothers and sisters, this is exactly how Christ meant to be. This is how God wants us to be able to have this intimate, familial relationship as part of the family. This is what he wanted to do. Jesus himself even before his ascension, he spoke of these same words. You remember that when Jesus was teaching and his family came over and they say, behold, your mother, your brothers are outside looking for you. And he says, he looked around, he says, those, whoever does the will of God, he's my brother and sister and mother. This is how he relates to us. In Matthew chapter 28, after his resurrection, the women came to the tomb. They did not find Jesus. They're running away, and then he meets them. And what does he tell them? Jesus says, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and they will see me. He would say, you are of little faith. You guys are unworthy. Get on your knees. You are glorifying me, right? He, is abs- he would be absolutely correct and right to do that. But he chooses this way of relating to the human beings, to the disciples who just abandoned him, who denied him, and he says, tell my brothers to go to Galilee. I will wait for them there. Brothers and sisters, this is how he relates to us. Jesus Christ took on the body of a human in order to relate to us in the same way today. He doesn't relate in our heroic times, right? When you you do things that are right, you know, when things are going well with you, he relates to you 
even at your lowest point, when you're suffering, when you're grieving, when you're hurting, when you're confused, when you don't understand, when you don't have enough faith, when you fail, he says, I understand you, my brother and my sister. In many ways I can relate to because I have held, I hold the same nature, the same humanity as you do. I have had the same flesh as you did. I have now a glorified body and you'll join me in that, but I understand you, I know you, and I will help you through this. It is amazing. When we deal with this older brother, he is the best brother. He's the perfect brother. He is our hero not like heroes that we read about and we can't even relate to them. We're just impressed by them, right? He's the hero who happens to be our family member. When you talk about your brother or your mother or your father of whom you're proud of, this is my bro, right? Or this is my dad. This is how Christ relates. He is the greatest hero of all time. The greatest hero And we get to relate to him like to no one else. He fully understands us. Well, my plan was to get to chapter 15, but I was afraid this was going to happen. I want to take you maybe to one quotation that the the author to Hebrews uses. And then we will end. He says, he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Again, he takes them to the Old Testament. And if you go with me to Psalm 22, Psalm 22 was also written of David. And this psalm from the very beginning, from the early church, Christians has always been considered the messianic psalm. It has phrases and description of the suffering servant that clearly refer to Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Jesus on the cross using exactly the same phrase. He says, those words that were written back then, they apply to me. Look with me at verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Verse 7, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Does that ring a bell? Does that remind you of the New Testament when Jesus Christ was on the cross? In verse 15, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. When Jesus, before dying, he says, I am thirsty, right? Verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. This is hundreds of years before crucifixion has ever even been used for punishment, Jesus already, or David, was using this, these words in order to foreshadow of Christ who will be crucified. 
Verse 18, they divided my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. But the verse that is used by the author in verse 12 of Hebrews, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, refers to a specific verse in Psalm 22 of Psalm 20. Uh, 22, verse 22, where it says, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. The author here switches the scene and speaks of this glorious, glorious state of this suffering servant, where it speaks of Jesus Christ when he was crucified And resurrected, he says, now, because I have gone through this, I have been heard later on in the verses. I have been answered to. I have been despised. And look, now I have been glorified. I will actually proclaim to you God praise. And in fact, I am going to tell about you to all of my brethren. In this way, referring that Jesus is not ashamed to call us our brothers. In fact, what he's doing, he says, I am the one who has been lowered again to the lowest state. I have been brought to the highest state and now I have done it for you. And now I will teach you and I will tell you how to praise God because I have done it perfectly and I will lead you in order to, like my brothers and my sisters to lead you to the glory. The following passage speaks about another context. We will not get into it. Another messianic passage from Isaiah chapter 8 where referring to those times when Isaiah was speaking and says, I will trust in the Lord. It is as if Jesus speaking and says, I have trusted the Lord fully and I will teach you how to trust the Lord. He then later, as Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 8, he says, these are my children that God has given me. I have protected them in the same way Jesus deals with us as with those whom he loves and God has has given to him the chosen nation. He has given to him his children. Jesus says, I accepted them as my own. I relate to them as if they are my own children because they're my brothers, and I will teach them how to trust you, and I will teach them how to even fellowship with one another, how to love with one another. So Jesus, as a summary, he is that true human, perfect human being. He is that qualified pioneer that has accomplished for us salvation. He is the author of salvation. He is the trailblazer who leads us all the way to glory. And he relates to us like no one else as a brother, someone very close, understanding us, blessing us, helping us. To him be praised. I hope as you leave tonight, today, as you ponder about Christmas, that you wouldn't just think and limit yourself in salvation alone. He has done it. Praise the Lord. This is why Jesus came. 
I hope you have a little better and well-rounded understanding of the person of Jesus Christ, that he is like you, human, being able to relate to you in a very, very intimate way. He understands you, he loves you, he leads you, he has done all that you would come in this perfect relationship with the triune God. May God bless you in that. Please pray with me. Our Father, we amazed just as the, the beauty of your plan of salvation. And sometimes with our limited minds, we're just so focused of saving us from the wrath to come. But Lord, it is so much greater than that. The relationship that you offer to us, the relationship that you have given to us, the way you relate to us, Lord, it is glorious. You relate to us as another human being through Jesus Christ who has gone through everything, every pain, every temptation and came out victorious on our behalf and is ready to be next to us in helping us through all of these troubles, leading us to the time of glory where we will see you face to face and rejoice with you and live with you and enjoy you forever. We praise you, Jesus Christ, for all the work that you have done on our behalf and continue to do so. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.